Full Scope, Human Longevity and Performance Podcast. We want you to become the most exceptional, high-performing version of yourself. And to facilitate this, we are giving away the Longevity Fundamentals Handbook absolutely free. This is a tremendous resource that will tell you the lifestyle behaviors and mindset that will lead to the best outcomes and longevity. To get this, go to our website, wondermedicine.com or fullscope.org, put in your email, and we will send you this amazing resource, the Longevity Fundamentals Handbook. Humans evolved on planet Earth exposed to the force of gravity. We call this force little g. It's actually not a force at all. It's acceleration. We define acceleration as a change in velocity, a change in direction, or a change in both velocity and direction. And gravity on Earth is equal to 9.8 meters per second for every second. When you combine this acceleration from gravity with the mass that makes up our body, you get a force, the gravitational force. Remember, force is equal to mass times acceleration. For just over a hundred years now, since World War I actually, humans have been capable of creating aircraft that can accelerate to such a degree that it can cause forces powerful enough to make pilots go unconscious. We call this G-lock, or G-loss of consciousness, and it's very important in aviation medicine. You can imagine that if a pilot goes unconscious during flight, they could crash into the ground or another object, and if they're in combat, they'd be extremely vulnerable to being shot down. Since G-loss of consciousness was first observed, Scientists, flight surgeons, and physiologists have all been looking for strategies to improve human tolerance to G-forces, what we call G-force tolerance. Today on Full Scope, we're going to talk about G-forces and G-force tolerance. So what is a G-force? Well, a G-force is actually just a measure of acceleration. And when we combine that acceleration with the mass of our bodies, we get a force, a g-force. Basically, we define g-forces in multiples of the gravity on Earth. And we call g-forces big G. Big G is equal to the acceleration divided by little g. So, for instance, if you are accelerating at a hundred meters per second for every second, you would divide that by little g, which is approximately 10 meters per second per every second, and you would get 10 g's of force. But what does this actually mean for the individual experiencing the g-force? Well, if you are experiencing 10 g's, your body weight is going to feel 10 times heavier than it normally is. So a 200 pound man would feel like 2,000 pounds, or a 100 kilogram man would feel like a 1,000 kilograms. By that same token, if the distance your heart has to pump blood 
from your heart to your head is 30 centimeters, the pressure needed to push that blood up would increase 10 times such that it would be like your heart now having to pump blood 300 centimeters up to your brain. It becomes easy to see that with increasing g-forces movement is going to become extremely difficult and you're going to run the risk of blood not being able to get up to your brain therefore leading to loss of consciousness as we said earlier. The danger of any given g-force depends on several different factors. The direction of the force relative to the body is very very important. The magnitude of the force, or how many G's, is also, of course, important. How fast those G's are, or how fast we are presented with those G's, or the rate of onset, is very important, as well as the duration we have to sustain those G's for. Let's go ahead and break down each of those four factors a little bit to improve our understanding and kind of set some definitions and terms. Let's first talk about the direction of the force relative to the body. We call positive GZ by convention a force that is coming down through your head and down through your toes. We call negative GC a force that's going up from your toes through your head. Positive GZ is very important it's what we're most concerned with with regard to fighter pilots because of the way they sit in the cockpit basically when a fighter pilot has to pull up or pull the stick back thereby elevating the nose of the plane and increasing in altitude they're gonna feel that GZ force positive GC that is GX is the force through the chest and we call positive GX the force going through the front of the chest through the back and so a good way to think about that force is the astronauts kind of laying laying down basically in the top of the rocket ship the rocket ship shooting straight up and that force kind of shooting right through their chest negative GZ or GX is just the opposite. It's a force that's going from back to chest. So you can imagine if an astronaut was laying on their stomach for takeoff, they would experience a negative GX. GY refers to lateral forces. And by convention, a positive GY is a force that's traveling from the right side of a person through their body to the left side, and a negative GY is a force that's traveling from the left side of the body through it and to the right side. Magnitude refers to how many big G's an individual is experiencing. Rate of onset refers to how fast that magnitude of G's is accomplished. For instance, did it take one second to get to 10 G's or did it take 10 seconds to get to 10 G's? And finally, duration refers to how much time the individual has to undergo that g-force. Did they have to undergo G 10 g's for five seconds or did they have to do it for a minute? With increasing magnitude of g-forces 
faster rates of onset and longer duration of those g-forces it's going to equal worse outcomes for the aviator or individual experiencing those g-forces morbidity and mortality positive gz forces are going to cause blood to pool in the lower, li lower limbs this is going to cause decreased venous return which is going to decrease stroke volume in the heart moreover as G's go up, it basically increases the distance from your heart to your head due to hydrostatic pressure. And for each increase in 1 GZ, you're going to have a 20 to 25 millimeter per mercury drop in head level blood pressure. You can see that it won't take too many G's before the blood pressure in the brain is going to be too low to support perfusion and someone might pass out. In general, increasing G's causes a predictable gray out to blackout to loss of consciousness if G's are brought on slow enough. However, if G's come on too quickly, pilots can progress straight to G loss of consciousness without warning. But even if G force onset is rapid, it's still going to take at least four to five seconds for loss of consciousness to occur because of the brain's residual oxygen capacity of about four to five seconds. What's basically going on there is that in the eye you've got an intraocular pressure and that pressure is usually 10 to 20 millimeters of mercury. A lot of people are probably familiar with the cerebral perfusion pressure equation. It basically tells you how much blood pressure you need to bring blood to the brain. And it's equal to the mean arterial pressure minus the intracerebral pressure. But less people have probably heard of the retinal perfusion pressure. And that's defined as the mean arterial pressure minus the intraocular pressure. And since the retinal or the uh, intraocular pressure is 10 to 20 millimeters of mercury which is actually higher than the normal intracranial pressure which is usually more like 5 to 10 millimeters of mercury you're going to lose blood pressure to your eye first that's why you're going to have that gray out which is then going to proceed to a blackout as it the the g's continue to get stronger your cerebrum is then going to lose perfusion and you're going to have a loss of consciousness if G's are removed immediately after that G-lock or G-loss of consciousness, people usually do just fine. But if you continue them at that G-load, they would eventually get brain damage and then eventually die from a lack of a perfusion and ischemic injury. Like we said earlier, if you're in a plane and you're flying and you lose consciousness, you're likely to hit the ground, another object, or if you're in combat, be shot down. For short duration exposures to G-forces, it's pretty amazing the human tolerance thresholds for severe injury. And so I want to rattle them off really quickly. For positive GZ, or that force going from head to foot, remember most important for fighter pilots, it's actually 25 Gs. For negative GZ, it's 15 Gs. For positive GX, or that force going from the chest to the back, like those astronauts experience when they lift off into space, it's 50 Gs. For negative GX, it's 45 Gs. And for any lateral GY, either right to left or left to right, it's actually 12 Gs. 
Amazingly, we can withstand a lot of G-forces if it's for a short period of time. What's up, Full Scope listeners? If you are enjoying this content, if this content is bringing you value, please share it with your friends, loved ones, and everyone else. Post it online, on social media. Let your friends know. Have them subscribe. Put the word out there. That's all we really ask. And at the very least, give us a review and rate the podcast. Thanks so much. Let's get back to the show. There's some interesting things that happen as a result of G-forces. There's a lot of changes that go on in the lungs. The uh, thoracic cavity can really be compressed and the diaphragm can get pushed down. This can lead to profound changes in pulmonary function as well as atelectasis. The heart can definitely be affected. Premature ventricular contractions are fairly common along with premature atrial contractions. Sinus bradycardia and other arrhythmias can also be seen. G measles are also something that's been reported on. These are petechial hemorrhages which occur in the lower legs due to increased blood pressure down there with that blood pooling we talked about. Going back to the lungs, you can get what's called an acceleration atelectasis. That's when you get collapsing of the alveoli in the lung as a result of these G-forces. One thing that can make this problem worse is if you're breathing too high content of oxygen. Basically what happens is all that oxygen gets absorbed from the alveoli, making the gas in the alveoli a lot less. And so without that gas there to kind of brace that alveoli, it will collapse on itself. And you can prevent that by increasing the amount of nitrogen in the air inspired because that nitrogen is not going to be absorbed as much and it's going to stay in there and and help splint that alveoli during uh, respiration. So what is G tolerance then? Well G tolerance is the amount of G's that an individual can handle before they experience a gray out or a G induced loss of consciousness. Now in research sometimes we use stricter definitions. For instance a common one is the amount of G is necessary to cause a gray out at 60 degrees in the peripheral vision. So the G tolerance actually varies significantly from individual to individual. For instance, it ranges for positive GZ from 2.7 to 7.8 Gs. So some people are going to be passing out around 3 Gs, while others are going to be almost able to handle 8 Gs. And the mean is about 4.7 Gs. So if the mean GZ tolerance is only 4.7 GZs, how do fighter pilots regularly sustain 9 Gs on flights? But first, story time. The history of aerospace medicine and flight surgeons is really, really fascinating. In the early 20th century, this was a brand new field, and these scientists essentially used themselves as guinea pigs on a lot of different, uh, a lot of different experiments, and really did some amazing things and put themselves at considerable risk in the process. U.S. Air Force Colonel John Stepp. MD-PhD 
was an extreme example of this. This guy made a sled at a New Mexico military base in order to test human tolerance to G-forces. Think about a long railroad track in the desert with a little cart that had rockets strapped to the back on it and a human strapped to the front of it that would then hit, say, a water break area and it would accelerate extremely fast and then stop on a dime. Well, Colonel Stapp did several runs on animals, on test dummies, and then several on humans. In fact, he completed 26 runs on himself, during which he broke his wrist, he broke ribs, and sustained other injuries. He got up to like over 30 G's, and his superiors found out about this, and they were pissed. They told him to stop. But on December 10th, 1954, Stapp pushed it to the limit. That day he gained the nickname of the fastest man on earth. He accelerated his sled to an amazing 662 miles per hour. Keep in mind he was just literally strapped to a chair on the front of it. He sustained 46.2 G's that day and this is GX. This is the highest G-force any human has ever voluntarily sustained. As a result of this amazing ride, he, he got retinal hemorrhages. He bled into both of his eyes, and immediately following it, he was blind. He was worried that he would literally never see again. But his vision did return, and he got completely back to health. Prior to Stapp's experiments, it was believed that humans could only sustain about 18 G's. Little bit off on that measurement. Stapp's pioneering research in aviation and transportation led to a number of safety improvements throughout the transportation industry. Improvements in things like seat belts and everything else. The immediate effect of Stapp's sled research was that it allowed the military to design ejection seats from jet aircraft that would put pilots at 32 G's, really pushing the limits of human physiology. Before that they were worried that such seats would kill them, but these forces are necessary in order to, uh, you know, eject a pilot from a potentially crashing jet. Boom! One important part of our natural physiology that improves our G tolerance is the baroreceptor reflex. Essentially, there is the stretch receptors located both in the arch of the aorta and the carotid body, so in the great vessels in the chest and in the neck, that can sense stretch or a lack of stretch. So, if they sense a lack of stretch, they're going to realize that the blood pressure is low, and that sends a signal that's going to tell the heart to beat faster, so improve cardiac output by increasing the heart rate, and also uh, squeeze on the vasculature. So you're going to get that vaso and uh, arterial constriction, which then can hopefully improve blood, blood pressure as well. And that can improve your response to Gs by a half a G to a G. It does take, um, you know, a few five to ten seconds to kind of kick in with that reflex. All right, so how do fighter pilots sustain forces of up to nine Gs and not pass out and still fly their jets? 
Well, the first way is with the anti-G-suit. And an anti-G-suit, which is also known as a flight suit, is essentially a suit that contains bladders which can be filled with air. These bladders then compress the lower extremities and increase the blood return back up to the heart, making it so less blood pools in the lower extremities. There's a five bladder G-suit, which covers about 25% of the lower extremities and gives you about a 1 to 1.5 increase in G tolerance in the positive GC access. There's also a full coverage anti-G suit which is used in, in obviously um, aircraft that can accelerate faster and that covers about 90% of the lower extremities and can improve positive GC tolerance by 2 to 2.5 G's. These suits are pretty cool in that they have these anti-G valves, which basically sense positive GZ acceleration. And at over 2 Gs, they will start to inflate and hopefully improve blood return to the heart. Um, it's pretty amazing. Like it, it, Within one second, you can get 90% inflation. So they really work quickly. Another thing that can help, especially at higher G loads, is positive pressure ventilation. Um, it's very hard to breathe when you're under high G-forces 1, so I think the positive pressure ventilation probably makes it easier to breathe. But it also increases the pressure in the intrathoracic cavity, which can further help to push blood back up into the brain. Perhaps the biggest bang for your buck as far as improving G-tolerance is the anti-G-straining maneuver, often... Um, acronymed AGSM and this is actually a physical voluntary maneuver where the pilot is squeezing the muscles in their legs butt and abdomen while performing a rhythmic valsalva maneuver with with breaths every kind of three to four seconds and really short choppy breaths but basically the pilot is going to start flexing all those leg and butt muscles before they enter a maneuver that's going to increase G's. And as the G's hit, they're going to start that Valsalva maneuver. And basically, a Valsalva is when you are pushing air against a closed glottis. Basically, like holding your nose and then pushing air out, but not actually exhaling it, increasing that pressure in your chest and abdomen, which is going to help push more blood up to the brain. And that anti-G straining maneuver, if done correctly, can actually improve G tolerance by as much as 3 Gs. So it's a really important thing, and because it's so important, pilots are typically trained in, in these, these anti-G uh, straining maneuvers. And usually that's done in a centrifuge, and, and all the big militaries in the world have centrifuges that they use to train their pilots. Typically, anyone that's going to experience over 5 Gs in their aircraft is going to be undergoing and learning about these maneuvers. That training also improves awareness of, of G-lock coming on. It, it makes them better able to recognize symptoms. I would say those three things are really the most important factors in improving G-tolerance. And those are your flight suit or anti-G suit, your anti-G straining maneuver, and then your training. On top of all those factors, though, there are a number of other things 
that can influence G tolerance. For instance, body composition certainly can. Um, I can imagine if somebody was heavier, like an obese individual, um, they've got more room in their legs and butt to pull, and they're going to have reduced capacity to actually squeeze with their muscles because there's more fat, and so that's probably going to lower G-tolerance. As a tall person, you're probably going to have less G-tolerance. You've got more leg to pull blood to, and then on top of that, you've got a longer column that you need to pump blood up from your heart into your brain. For instance, I'm a tall person, and if I am being exposed to 1G, but I'm being exposed to 1GX, so laying flat on my back, but then I stand up and quickly convert my 1GX to 1GZ, I'll have a, a usually a gray out almost every time if I do that. So height can also be a factor as well, which makes me sad because I'm, you know, 6'6", six, six, and everybody wants good G tolerance, right? Some other things that can affect it are hydration status. So if you're dehydrated, you don't have as much blood in your tank and you're going to be at more risk to not get enough blood to your brain. If you've got inadequate nutrition or you know you haven't eaten that day, that, that can affect it. If you're feeling tired or fatigued or behind on sleep, if you've got an infection of some kind, that can certainly make a big difference. If you've been using substances, particularly things like alcohol or smoking or, or doing other things, that can lower G-tolerance. And then uh, physical fitness actually can potentially improve G-tolerance. And I've seen some studies kind of debating this fact, but when you watch videos of the fighter pilots they think it's real and if the fighter pilots think it's real I think it's real too but basically doing um, heavy full body usually posterior chain leg lifts are the most important so things like back squats and deadlifts and when you do a deadlift you just feel all the G's on your body stop skipping leg day people cardiovascular and endurance exercises are important as well though probably not as important but you can imagine that having a lot of reserve and being able to have good endurance is going to be important on long flights and long missions you don't want to wear out you want to be in really good shape and your focus is obviously very important with things like an anti-g-string maneuver and so the better your fitness is probably the better apt you are to handle long difficult flights and long difficult maneuvers. Another engineering control that's improved g-tolerance at least in fighter pilots is tipping their seat back about 30 degrees. This basically lowers the distance gravity wise between the heart and the brain. You're kind of actually shifting to like kind of a GZ type force to a GX type force. One thing I didn't talk much about is negative GZ. That's when the force is going from your toes basically to your head and it causes blood to kind of actually pull toward the top of your body and being exposed to a negative GZ force and then subsequently being exposed to a positive GZ force will actually lower your G tolerance and one way that that plays out in aviation is with a push-pull maneuver so if you push the yoke forward 
the plane is going to turn nose down and go into kind of a nose dive. If you try to pull out of that quickly, and that's the pull part, you're now pulling the yoke back, that is going to be a vulnerable time for someone to have a loss of consciousness because they're pairing a negative GZ force with a positive GZ force in that push-pull maneuver. So that's something to keep in mind. It's something you hear about a lot, and it is a dangerous situation if somebody's in, in a nosedive and has to pull out of it pretty quickly. Okay, that is G-force and G-force tolerance. Remember that G-force is not actually a force. It's actually an acceleration, but when you combine that with the mass of our bodies, we feel that as a force. Most people can handle around four Gs before they start experiencing gray out and then blackout, which are loss of vision, followed by loss of consciousness. If Gs are taken away at that point, usually there's no harm or big problem. But if that G is sustained and no blood keeps getting to the brain, that person's going to die and, or at least have an ischemic brain injury. Humans were evolved to handle 1G, the force of gravity basically, but yet we are able to tolerate a lot, lot more than that, which is awesome because it makes it, it, makes it possible for us to do things like fly planes and go into space. Interestingly though, while we can handle a lot of Gs, certain bacteria, and in fact extremophile bacteria, can handle a ton of Gs. In fact, some bacteria can grow at over 400,000 G's. Holy cow, people. There's a lot of things we can do to improve our G tolerance. Some of the most important things are an anti-G flight suit, anti-G straining maneuvers, namely flexing your legs and butt while performing a Valsalva maneuver, along with training. But other things are also important, like physical fitness, being well hydrated, having good nutrition, and not being on certain drugs or substances, and not being sick. That's Big G, baby! Thank you so much for listening to the Full Scope Podcast and investing in your health. I'm Dr. Bill Randenberg. If you're enjoying the content, please rate, review, and share this content with all of your friends online and all your social media platforms. Please understand that this podcast is not intended to treat, diagnose, or cure your specific medical condition. This podcast does not create any type of doctor-patient relationship between myself, Dr. Brandenburg, and you, the listener. If you do need help with your life, with your health, with anything regarding your longevity or performance, please check out wondermedicine.com. Our longevity and performance program is the best in the world and is ready to help you right now, today, become the best possible individual you can be. Thanks. Bye-bye.